it's literally a story and and it's within all of us we are all telling a story and we are all as valid as each other you guys are as valid as me to say whatever the hell you like about whatever your experience is just a quick note to say that this episode deals with bereavement and talks about issues around suicide and mental health which is not to say that this isn't a really warm and open and positive i think in many ways conversation grief is funny and it's weird and it's wonderful and it shows you some unadulterated beautiful pieces of kindness from other people it shows you people working to help you and support you you know i might be saying that there's no support from the government and from the system but in terms of human beings and community you know i've got so much to owe so many people for being really positive around me and for helping me and and encouraging me to do well hello i'm dave i'm the guy that's putting all this stuff together I need to get better Please make me better I want to get better 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 acquainted with you Today we're getting better acquainted with Jack Rook. Hello Jack. Hi Dave, how are you doing? I'm good and we're recording in, maybe I was saying to you just before we started, it's like maybe the most <laughs> quietest uh, location I've ever recorded in, in a central London location. Yeah. Uh, we're at the Roundhouse mm. in, a, in, a, in a sort of sound studio. Yeah. Using, it, not using the sound studio equipment, using, still using my, still using my, my little, little Zoom, mic. Zoom di- DIY mic stuff. Yeah. yeah, I much prefer that because I don't know what all the knobs and all the buttons do. No, nor but do I. I, I always feel like it's a bit like um, a ski chalet, but for audio recording purposes. Yeah, it is yeah. a bit like that. It's quite nice. Yeah, it's good. And so, right, the first question that I ask everybody mm. is how do you know me? Me and Dave had a passionate sexual relationship from 1993 until 2001. <laughs> I like the I like the idea of just leaving that as Let's reality. Leave it like that, yeah. But we, it's not quite reality. It's not quite reality. I don't even think I was born then. Um, <laughs> I, I know Dave because um, well, I've 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 I think I've met you a couple of times, yeah. but like never really always registered oh because it's always been like in an environment where it's been quite busy or, yeah or i've been rushing around or you've been rushing around right but i think i've properly first became properly acquainted with you i'd say last year when we were doing spark like, yeah. i think that's probably you came along like, to a spark yeah. night and you told a story i told a story and i didn't know that you were a performer i mean to, to you know because oh, what the, did you think the members of the Dave? well the members of the audience oh you thought uh, i was nodding yeah you yeah. could have you know so you, so that's what it is it's an open mic yeah um so we do get performers who come yeah. along to try stuff out or mm. and, that, and they're very welcome but yeah. it's not just about performers it's about normal people right. it's like, not always like about show. us bloody artsy show-offs but you were amazing i mean i really enjoyed your story it resonated with stuff within me even even though it's not directly like carbon copy experiences at all of my life, there yeah. was lots within it that really resonated with me. That's um, very sweet. And stuff that was going. And so I sort of, yeah, kind of reached out to you about doing stand up tragedy and then in for yeah. a penny, in for a pound, threw in this as well. Yeah. Basically, I'm clinging onto you like a a, a crab <laughs> would cling onto its prey. Yeah. No, I did spark and loved it. I first went at Wilderness Festival, and all my friends were taking ketamine, and I'm not really a big fan of such substances. <laughs> so I decided to like wander off at this festival, and it was like quite a lot of raw 
you know, um, people who were just like up for listening to some really boring drum and bass in a forest. And I left and walked to the big literary circular tent, and there was Charlie Harrison doing Spark comparing it. And right. I thought, I think the theme was silver linings. And so you could go up and tell a story about anything that had a silver lining to it. And I told a story about being in a gay bar and being mistaken for a lesbian. Wow. Um, my visual appearance isn't very nice, people. It is, that's not it's, true. It's, it's, well, I'm quite top half heavy, so it does look like I could be You have holding, long hair as well. I've got long hair. is a, unfortunately a demarcation of gender exactly. rather than what it is, which is hair. Yeah, it's just hair. <laughs> Uh, I've also got, you know, um, if if I have shaved properly, no facial hair, and a rather kind of young, I'd say, like, um, neither overtly male, obvious face, and overtly overly feminine face. It's like a bit like having one of those, like, g- generic smiley faces. And and, and I, at the time, was carrying a little bit more weight up top and, and was wearing all black. So I, I could genuinely... I could have passed for kind of, like, young Joe Brand. Right. And, yeah, so I got hit on in a gay club by a lesbian. Yeah, and it was, like, the full legit thing. It wasn't like she was, like, think She didn't... She wasn't, like, messing around with me. She wasn't joking. Right. She, she genuinely thought I was a woman. Wow. Um, and, look, I thought it was... Amazing. I was. I mean, at that point, I'd never been hit on by a gay man. So, you know, to start off with a lesbian was a really quite eye-opening experience. Right. And then um, her friend, who had set the whole thing up, who was a man, subsequently apologised to me. And then um, I went back to his. So that was the silver lining. That's a good silver lining. It was lining. A silver. Yeah. So it was like you know, it was like you know when you hear about a normal story, and it's like beginning, introduction, crisis point, crisis point, resolution. It was like one of those, but the crisis point wasn't really that much of a crisis. I was just mistaken for a lesbian, which in a gay bar, as a gay man, is a bit of a crisis. Yeah, I mean, I think I can understand I why like, that would be... Like, the thing is, it's not saying that any other way of being is wrong to, to be upset that you're mistaken one way. Yeah. So I had that kind of thing going, going on with my school life, to a certain extent, yeah. in that I am straight. Well, straight-ish, I, I, yeah. I, I, I call but myself you know, but I'm now, a bit whatever. straight. Right, but, but that's... A, but that's a different Do you know what we are, Dave? Well, We're normal. Right, exactly. But, yeah. And at school, often I was... A lot of the bullying I received at school, and there was lots of different flavours of it, but yeah. some of it was homophobic. Yeah. And it always put me in a, a, a tricky position as, a, think, as <laughs> a liberal, like, li- progressively edu- like brought up person who I did not think that there was yeah. anything wrong with being gay. I didn't want to deny that I was gay because it sounds it, it like I'm like, like condoning yeah. homophobia. Yeah. I mean, you know... I'm not saying I always didn't like I you know like sometimes I betrayed my principles in the moment yeah. of frustration but I certainly would never get up on stage and complain that I was you know mistaken I should never have been gay. mistaken for that. Yeah, isn't um, it really funny that like being mistaken for being gay in some cultures is like a defamatory like it's like it's a libelous thing it's like speaking right. badly about someone. Well, it was part <laughs> I mean, of it's like, right. I mean, it was part of the gender policing that I was yeah. receiving, so I wasn't properly consi- you know, I wasn't considered masculine in the right way. So yeah. it's like you're gay or you're a woman. Those are the those yeah. are the categories that are below man yeah. uh, in those boys' minds. Yeah. And all, uh, oh, in fact, girls as well. I'm not. I'm not claiming True, that. Yeah. They, I'm not claiming that, that I didn't get equal opportunities. Uh, patriarchal bullying. <laughs> <laughs> uh, uh, yeah. But um, <laughs> I don't know where to go from that sentence. It's well, like, rather I, a ridiculous one. It's but. it's isn't it weird because like we have got like if I'm on I've had a very different upbringing. So my upbringing was was you know 
never one of being homophobic, but like if somebody called me gay, I'd be like, "No, I'm not. You're fucking gay." Isn't it, it's weird when you grow up, you realise that all these things that were like totally cool at school see that rhymed are just like completely quite upsetting when you think right. about them in the long term right. so you know I've realised it recently in my upbringing I was like the only kid from a very working class background but living and going to school in a very middle class area Right. so I always stuck out uh, uh, and, and as a bit of a sore thumb on a very visual basis like all the kids would be wearing like Quicksilver and nice posh clothing and Ralph Lauren and I'd be there in like a kind of <laughs> like Lonsdale hoodie but but like that was the only way you could tell was visually whereas in terms of like being articulate or speaking or in class like I was always I always could compete with everyone else it was always a bit like you wouldn't think that I was the one that came from like it was really funny at primary school. All the kids' dads were like bankers and stockbrokers, and where I live is Chorley Wood, which is on the kind of commuter belt metropolitan line, and it's it's lots and lots of rich people, lots of lovely people, and lots of wankers. And I was the one who's like my mum worked in the CAF, in the council offices, and my dad was a black cab driver, and everyone found it so weird that like my mum and dad were the ones working in like the service industries, right. and everyone else's parents were like bankers and politicians and and stockbrokers and, and oil thieves. Well, that's an interesting... <laughs> that's a really interesting comparison in, to, to the kind of life... Like, my childhood growing up in Cardiff, once I, once I got there at 12, I was, I, was, I guess... My, I mean, my mum was a social worker, my dad was a documentary filmmaker, so yeah. we're middle class, but not in the... You know, yeah. somewhere, somewhere in the middle of the middle classes, yeah. right? Um, and towards the Guardian reader, end of the middle class politics, right? Yeah. And... I went to quite a working class school and, you know, by the end of my school life, my friendship group was solidly working class kids from Ely, which is the biggest council estate in the, in the country, I think, yeah. um, in Cardiff. And that's where I sort of, I spent all of my teen years in a, in a you know, in the in the front room of my working class mates playing playing N64 yeah. and you know tr- uh, you know trying not to 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 remember what school is like yeah. um and <laughs> and like so yeah visually they would have dressed like you and i would have dressed the, i would have been the the odd one out in that we, group, like right? I- do you know what? Have you ever seen the film About a Boy with Hugh Grant? I know it's one of the. Like, I haven't seen it, actually. But... I feel like you would be the boy in About a Boy, <laughs> and I would have been the bully kid. <laughs> it's just like, well, yeah, but shut the fuck up, Dave. Take the fucking wool scarf off your brick. Right, but the bully, but the bully kids were all, became, were the ones. Some of the bully kids who started off that way, like my friend Owen, who is the person I'm thinking of the most. Yeah, like. Who you you share quite a lot in in there's a lot about uh, Owen and you when I meet you I, I I feel like oh you remind me of Owen which is yeah. a nice I know it's a compliment from my Thank side. Thank you very much, Dave. But, 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 but like I'll be stalking Owen on Facebook. Well, he's he's, he's he's a nice guy. He's, he's a complicated guy, but he's a nice guy. Yeah. But but I mean, like he started out, he would have had that kind of attitude. But yeah. you know, because I didn't. You know, because we, cause we're human beings and we interacted yeah. over time, that just became a basis of enjoyment within yeah. our friendship group, right? Yeah, like, I'm not, I'm not, um, I wasn't, like, a stroppy person because right. of my background, necessarily. It was more, like, my personality and the way I was brought up. God, this makes it sound like my parents were, like, awful. They're no, not, I don't like, think it does. the loveliest, but... sweetest people, but um, I definitely just stood out a bit like a sore thumb and and... 
it was a really difficult adjustment because it was constantly flipping between do I become the same as everyone else in terms of acceptance or do I like kind of celebrate being a bit different and then see where it goes and now that sounds like a topic that you know a nine-year-old wouldn't think of but I was thinking about it all the time it doesn't sound yeah, like I really really like remember me, yeah. being like oh because my like family were very uh, my extended family are, are probably even more you know working class than we are and like and it was really difficult to have that sense of um you know, like I was constantly being piled in with the middle class kids, but I never had the money or the the visual or the kind of education to back it, right. to like be the same as everyone else. So it was quite difficult being overgeneralized based on like where I was going to school or who I was hanging out with, but never actually being able to fully like, be the full ticket in that. I hope that makes sense. It makes sense to me. Like I say, for having a completely different background but having felt in a pretty similar position yeah i don't quite fit into anything here and i'm getting Mm. judged from all of these different points of view in all of these different ways like you know a a lot of that resonates with me uh even though i'm not i'm not suggesting that the like that i mean we didn't have money at times in my in my in my family but like you know we've always been relatively educationally privileged and certainly financially privileged in a hereditary way particularly Mm. I think like that's the biggest form of like privilege I've come to realize now that middle class people get is you might miss a generation in terms of income but if you if you can inherit your grandparents money exactly you've always got a safety net yeah and so that's the difference that's the difference because I will inherit well my dad passed away when I was 15 and you know it was really interesting because when he died you know from maybe like the eight from going into secondary school until then so year seven to year 11 like we were doing great like for, I, I suppose I started then you know coming out of primary school and into secondary school I started still maybe like having that kind of like family influence that was very much about working hard and grafting and you know doing your bit and it doesn't matter what job you're getting like you know just just work to then actually like having a slightly kind of like a bit of a taste of being like one of the middle class kids like my dad was doing really well and after he died it was then like fuck it was it was kind of like going back to that sense of not having money makes you very unhappy mm-hmm <laughs> And, yeah. and and it seems to me that I've got to explain this clearly, but like everyone who's slightly arty or middle class or driven in the ways that I were and, and in ways that I related to was a bit like, you know what, speaking about money is really vulgar and wanting money is really mm. wrong and, and needing fine and just just money was like a thing that was like really looked down on. And I'm there thinking, you can say that because you've got the privilege of having shitloads of it. Right. And I need money because I don't have shitloads of it and I don't even have, like, a main breadwinner's income coming in anymore. And considering the state of, you know, how we uh, treat bereaved people from the financial point of view, like, there is fuck all money that ends up coming to you and unless you are minted. So from, like, year 11 in, in my GCSEs onwards... It was a case of perseverance and claiming everything that you could get your hands on. And I would like, in my A-levels, 
just after my dad died, I thought there's no way, this is right in the middle of my GCSEs, I was like, there's no way I'm going to pass my GCSEs, and therefore there's no way I'm going to get to A-levels and to college, and there's no way I'm going to get to university. Like, nobody in my family had even surpassed GCSEs. Like, it, it, was, right. it was weird when I had, I'd worked solidly really, really hard and managed to get to sixth form college, and it was like, whoa, Jack's going to college. And that was like a massive achievement. For everyone else around me, it was like, yeah, sixth form was just like the next step. <laughs> it was like a linear thing that they were obviously going to do. Whereas with us lot, it was like a really kind of positive, like, great, Jack's at this, this point. And then I did A-levels and I got straight A's the whole time. And, I mean, this sounds like I'm being really big-headed, but I, I basically smashed it, considering the, like, previous three years beforehand. Right. And I would stay after school till, like, another hour and, a, hour and a half later with my form tutor, bless her, and we would just go through websites and go through scholarships and go through funds and go through grants and, and, and any way to get as much help financially as possible. And then I managed to get a full scholarship for my degree, and owe nothing to Student Finance England. Thank you very much, University of Westminster Scholarships. But it was really interesting how people keep on talking about how everything they've made is, you know, especially within the arts, that their decisions have been born out of them and their creativity and their ideas and what path they want to go on. And I'm like, you know what, it doesn't apply to me. The path I've chosen has depended on whether or not I can afford it. And if they were honest with themselves, even even the more privileged people the paths that they have made for themselves is absolutely not chosen either. Yeah, exactly. They had those opportunities, which meant that that they didn't have to, like, make the decisions that you made. So they can get to this super privileged position of, like, money doesn't matter or whatever. I mean, that, that, that kind of notion is... It's a big problem in the arts. Like, yeah, it's one it's of the things that keeps them segregated and keeps mm. the working classes and, and other minority groups who also generally have financial issues as well as other things yeah. from getting involved in the arts. Like, and we don't have a vibrant arts scene. It's not beneficial for any class of people to yeah. not have everyone talking. Exactly. You know? We don't have the... the you know what? I, I am getting so bored now. I've been performing for three years... I'm getting so bored of looking out at who my audience is and it's just all white people who live and work in London. And I don't know how you sort that out because as a promoter, I want a a diverse audience as well. But you know what's really interesting? The most diverse audience I've ever had was in a place where I thought it was going to be the most white, raw audience I'd ever played to. I got booked to do a gig with Mira Sayal at the Trafalgar Studios in the West End and I was thinking, okay this is going to be lots and lots of white people who can afford the West End ticket. And it wasn't. It was like the most... What was amazing about it is I was doing a 15-minute set and some people were laughing at some bits in the audience and other people were laughing at other bits and then some people found this bit sad and the other... and, and, And it was like... It was a complete, genuine, authentic mishmash of people... And it completely blew my preconception of what performing in a West End theatre would be like. Right. I thought it would be lots of white people wearing Gucci suits, and it wasn't at all. And it, it was really interesting, because I thought, how have I spent so long kind of being around arty people who are constantly speaking about diversity and, and kind of using it as a buzzword, but all they're really doing is is working with people who look exactly the same as themselves. Yeah. And... 
and it was just an interesting one. I don't know what the answer to it if, is. But even if they don't look exactly the same, that's the, the frustrating thing. Is that the, I mean, I can put on a diverse lineup, and I've been known to. It's something yeah. that I passionately care about. But the, that diverse lineup will be all from the same class of people. Like yeah, even true. If, even if some of those people, and and I I do look for work people who have working class roots. Yeah. By the time they reach my stage, they generally have been to university. They've been through that whole yeah. process. They're still speaking. They're speaking the language they've got the keys mm. like all the keys to culture yeah um so you, you know and it wouldn't be right as well to just throw working class people on a stage and say you've had no training perform for us right perform for us because <laughs> you're working class right. it's i don't know it's just I, I, i'm 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 worried that what i'm actually saying sounds like i'm being counterproductive but there's definitely an issue as to who gets the platform and and who gets it easily and who has to really, really slog and slog and slog and slog and deal with shitloads of mental health issues and deal with feeling like absolute shit all the time in order to get the platform that somebody else has walked onto really, really easily. Right. And, and maybe that's just part of it and maybe it means that the person who slogged more has got more interesting work to present. But it's... It's just a shame that the the myth is that, you know, talent is rewarded, whatever happens. And how I feel right now, and I'm, maybe I'm, I could be completely wrong, I'm totally open to being wrong. But how I feel like right now is talent is rewarded as long as you've got, you know, a bit of a bank balance to support you. Right. Because... It's no you can you can do a gig and it'd be great, but unless you're going to get booked for other gigs, and unless you're going to then be able to make something, and unless you're then going to be able to create a career, for me, as somebody who hasn't got the money right now, it, it strikes me as a bit of a cruel cycle of you're really great, but you can't afford to play with us. No, absolutely. It's like the whole thing that I'm dealing with right now with the Edinburgh Fringe Festival. Right. And I know the Edinburgh Fringe Festival costs a lot of money. And in order to do the show that I want to do, which I'm sure we'll speak about in a bit, yeah, yeah. I have got lots and lots of... I've got props and I've got projections and I've put my all into it and I've and I've put, you know, some of my own savings in and I've been really, really thankful to have an Arts Council grant to help me develop it. But in terms of putting it on that platform, unless I go free fringe, I can't afford to put it in a paid venue at all. Right. And and in order to do the show properly, it needs what a paid venue can provide you, like right. you know, big space, lighting rig, sound, projector, projections. Right. So I um, do the free fringe, and they, yeah. those things are not offered at all. No, like, they're not. not. And that's not an insult on the free fringe. That's no, just it's not what the free, free fringe, fringe does. Exactly. And it's all not. that they can guarantee is that you you'll have it's a microphone walls and a mic and, and, a and not even always a mic. Yeah. So, yeah. I mean, and the rest's on you. And, yeah. And that's great for, for getting rid of some of those barriers that we're talking about for yeah. some people, but it definitely means that if you want to do theatre, it's very hard to fit a theatre show or into it. something like that with, with more scope with, well, into it, yeah. It just feels like I could do it up there on the free fringe, but it would be, it's like everything else, it would just mean making compromise after compromise after compromise after compromise. And when you are watching lots of other people at the exact same position as you, who might not, you know, be, who might not even be writing about stuff that's as interesting, it could literally just be like something that's a little bit crap really but they have got the money I sound really really bitter maybe I am I'm no but quite... I think that's a fair point they've this got the money that... to do it they've right. got the money to put it on they've got the money to do it in the way that they want to do it yeah. and it's like 
I don't have that. And it's about thinking, you know, was I stupid and naive in the first place to even plan to do something ambitious that involves props? Isn't it weird how just, like, having props is now an ambitious thing? Right. Having projections is now an ambitious, well, big thing to do. And, I mean, like, to me, I was like, I'm watching all these other shows, and they've got them, but they've obviously got personal finances right. to do it. Well, that's the thing, and one of the things you were you were you one of the words you were talking about was talent, and I think the the the, the real horrible harsh truth of it is that talent isn't always rewarded. That yeah. often mediocre stuff because it's got finances behind it is rewarded as much as talented stuff. Like once you get to a certain level of finances, it doesn't matter if it's talented or mediocre; it will yeah. still get to the same place. Get that and then there's loads of people with talent who never. Who mm. never get seen. Yeah. Like already, you're lucky in that your voice is being seen by some people yeah. in some ways. Exactly. You're having some God. successes, yeah. which is not to say that you should feel grateful for the crumbs that are thrown you. Thanks either. so much, everybody. Right. Yeah, I know it's. Like, <laughs> yeah. you know. It, it's. It, I mean, I don't want to sound like I'm being really, really bitter and angry about it. I am very lucky still. I'm not trying to do this whole like poor me poor me I can't put on an art show because that's wanky in itself because there are some people who don't have enough money to fucking pay bills right but you know it's just an interesting thing how but how I kind of feel that I have been have worked really really hard up to a certain point to get to the same level as everyone else you know and I've done my degree and I've had a taste of performance and had a taster of it and now I want more but in order to have more now it's got to the point where it's like you need the money. Have you considered doing crowdfunding? I guess that's... Well, I have considered doing crowdfunding, yeah. but, like, <laughs> yeah, I'm really worried that I'm going to be the one who's like, look at my show, look how I think it might be really good, thank you, can you please give me some money? And everyone's going to not fund it. Because also, that's another thing, Dave, yeah, yeah, yeah. is that, like, when I'm looking at these crowdfunding things, the ones that get fucking funded are the ones where, like, they're, they're still the same people as that yeah. could already afford it. Right. There's the ones that are setting like five grand to do their debut show. They're the same people who who have got friends who are rich enough to bloody pay for it. Well, that's who probably fund it. Exactly. I mean, yeah. They fund it. Like, oh, uh, you know, a very, very close friend of mine is, is, is doing a crowdfunding thing at the minute and set five grand as the target, which is, you know, like more than triple the amount I would ask for because I don't think I'd get it and they've just done it and it's and I'm like how did you do it and they're like well, this person gave money and this person gave money and I'm like and they they weren't giving like tenors no. like to me for me to get a friend of mine to give me a tenor I'd be like oh my god right it's you. really hard they were getting like 100 yeah. 150 quid 200 quid, and I'm like what the fuck yeah like your show doesn't even mean anything it's just funny right <laughs> like and I don't want to judge that because uh, because what they do is great and they're really talented and it should have a platform but it is just interesting how, I don't know, I look at these crowdfunding things sometimes and it, it, it kind of puts me off even more. Right, and I think there's another reality <laughs> to this God, I as sound well. so bitter. But I, I, I think a lot of this is really fair. And one of the other things I think in the arts that, that is the reality now is, you mm. know how all them rich artists that we know of in our minds, right? Yeah. They all had sponsors. They all had like, like a lot of support from all of these all of these places, right? Whereas now it's all expected to basically be done by the artist. So, yeah. so you're supposed to not just be a, make art, you also have to be like good at being organised, yeah, good, good at, at being admin. admin, good good at social media, all of these things, which 
Um, and, but if you're if you have a certain amount of wealth around you, mm. there's other people doing that for you. Yeah, that it's only when you're you can at, pay for a PR, right. And so, you can pay for a producer, and you can pay for this, and you can pay for that. So it means the only artists who are going to be successful under the, under this model are ones who are together. And do you know what? Most yeah. artists aren't together. No, they're not. Most artists aren't good at self-promotion. Most of the interesting ones right, aren't. Right, and we want those people to make our art, so yeah. it, it, it's ridiculous to expect them to jump through these complicated ho- hoops. Yeah. I, mean, it's, I, it's I a, get annoyed that I have to be good at that stuff, and I am quite good at that stuff. Yeah. So I can only imagine how the people who aren't good at that stuff feel. Do you know yeah. what I mean? It's just basically somebody coming along and just saying, prove yourself right. all the time. Right. Prove yourself, prove yourself, prove yourself, prove yourself, prove yourself. And I can do that. That's cool. That's fine. It's just about being able to... <sighs> I'm going to pause for a second because I've got myself angry. It's about being able to put on what you want to put on in the right way. And in a way that means that you've got a little bit of dignity to do it in the way you want to do it. And in a way that is right for whatever the purpose of what you're creating is. Right. So, you know, if I was just doing something that was a very funny, visual, aesthetically pleasing type thing. Something that was, you know, just great. It was a cool idea. It, there was no thing behind it. And I don't, like, necessarily... um not putting down anything that's like no. that. I love some things where actually, like... The message is just there's no message. Right. It's just get on with it. It's yeah. happy. It's it's entertainment. But with my thing, it's it's about a story that's not being heard that much, which is you know about bereaved people and bereaved teenagers specifically, and how we genuinely tell them to shut up all the time, or we push tissues in their face. You know, it's really interesting. The symbolism of pushing tissues at someone, or giving somebody tissues, is saying, when they're crying, or they're upset, or they're talking about something, is basically saying, be quiet now, get over it. Yeah. It's it's yeah. saying, like, okay, I can see you're in pain, but stop, because it's making me feel uncomfortable like fuck tissues if I want to cry on stage or cry in an environment I'll just do it and do it and do it until I feel better right. and I don't know maybe that was a really weird it's not for wiping your eyes cause yeah, yeah I, I, I know maybe that was a really weird odd analogy but um, I don't know it's just frustrating that what I'm trying to maybe talk about within my work is already very silent topic and it will continue to be a silent topic unless you've got the money to put it on in the best way possible right and i'll probably put it on in the free fringe and scale it right back and not put it on in the best way possible and hope for the best right but then (laughs) that's the solution i've come to although quite a lot of the time and hopefully what might happen what can happen what sometimes happens is that you know you do it lo-fi one one year and then, and then on the somebody, back of that you can maybe get some something exactly. else the next year but this is you know that's already an, an extra hurdle an extra yeah. delay that you're having to have that somebody else with a wider background financial background yeah uh, would be able to just do jump like, over straight away so, yeah yeah fair enough sorry everybody listening I don't think you need to apologise to them uh, or to anyone. Or to, just you know, just to you, to me, Dave. Not to me either. <laughs> it's absolutely fine. And these things do need to be talked about. And I, I think yeah. that, 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 that everyone listening will understand that 
the, the passion in your voice comes from frustration. And, yeah. And also, I didn't find any of that, anything. You didn't, you know, you always were quite respectful to other people and, yeah. and all of these other things. I don't kind of kind of want to, like, add to that myth that, you know, all working class people are really hard done by and all this stuff, because I've definitely had a very middle class lifestyle for, for a number of years now. Yeah. It's just the reality on paper and then the reality in terms of where I'm from and then the reality in terms of what's in my bank account the three don't necessarily always match up right and what I might do day to day doesn't match up with you know what the practicalities or the risks both financially and mentally of doing it that they don't always even out to a nice blissful conclusion right and often it requires a lot of drive yeah. In order to just like, I haven't even put my show on yet, and I'm already this stressed out about. Right. It. I mean, you I are haven't driven, even put on like the full thing. I mean, you're doing a one-person show, a- aiming to do it in Edinburgh. So am I, right? Yeah. But I saw your work in progress last year. Yeah. I haven't even bloody got that far <laughs> yeah, yet. Yeah, yeah. So you know, you are proper driven. You're like already like on it. I mean, I'm a bit later than I should be on it, but yeah. But I mean, it's. But I mean, you know, you are driven, and your work is really like when you're talking about talent. I would, I would say that you're a talented person. I really, really enjoyed your work in progress you, show. Uh, again, it touched me in loads of complicated, weird ways that aren't necessarily completely like, like for example, you know, I, I mean. The, the most obvious example is today is my my dad's 91st birthday right yeah. so there is no connect like but when I was growing up I always thought he was going to die so it yeah. did have actually some complicated like surprising mm. um, connotations resonances with my experience even though wildly different yeah like completely different in, in lots of ways yeah um, but but yeah, the second yeah. question that I ask everyone, and uh, sometimes it does come late. Uh, and this is what well, it's the time now. Have it, we been talking? No, we're, we're, don't don't you don't you pay any mind. To do what time <laughs> it is. Um, but, but but the second question I ask everyone is, what do you do now? And I guess we sort of touched on that a little bit. But yeah. what, what would you say when you're asked that? What do you do? I wake up at ten a.m. I watch this morning, and then I watch Loose Women. And then I get angry that ITV adverts have got only white people in them and then I turn ITV off and I try and do something productive and then I watch The Chase which is also on ITV it's a great game show and then I <laughs> call up some people and say can I put on my piece of work here will you help me and then they say yes or no and then I look for part time jobs <laughs> <laughs> and then right. I go to bed at 3 in the morning and then wake up at 10 the next day well, that, that's a very nice uh, description. Christ, of what yeah, your how bloody middle class is that lifestyle? Eh? Yeah, I mean, <laughs> I don't know. There's a, there's, a, there's, a, there's, a, there's, a, there's big influences from a couple of classes. I feel like in there. Yeah, I mean, like a middle class version of that. They probably wouldn't be watching uh, ITV. They'd be watching, uh, I don't know, BBC One. What did I used to watch? True. Yeah, Doctors. Doctors. I can't watch Doctors, it's too highbrow for me. Right. <laughs> no, I, I'm unemployed at the moment, Dave, is the answer to that question. I've, I've just graduated, and in order to... This is maybe another thing that... Uh, this is like getting better acquainted with Jack Rook, the angry, bitter person who isn't doing as well as he was a year ago. <laughs> yeah. Well, no, a year ago I was on my degree, and right. it was the third year... And it was, it was the last hurdle, and I was feeling really positive, and I'd put all my energy into it, and I'd really knuckled down, and managed to graduate with the first, and managed to get um, this. Oh God, this sounds like I'm being really big-headed and noncy, but like I managed to get the highest mark anyone's ever got on my degree, and was feeling like, yes, well done, Jack. It's been six years since Dad's died, and 
in the middle of my GCSEs, I thought I'll never get to A levels, and then in my A levels, I thought I'll never get to uni, and then to get to uni, and then to then like be that high up and yeah. feel really happy and feel like I kind of justified all the risks and the the kind of like you know moving out of home and and kind of falling out of touch with people but really working hard it felt like it was all justified and I graduated and I was like hello world here I am how we all doing and then everything was just like um actually we don't really care um yeah no I mean can you go back now because uh yeah we we don't we there's no part-time jobs available at the moment you can get a full-time graduate scheme but it won't pay much and you'll probably be really unhappy just go away please yeah, I mean, sadly, <laughs> you know, in, in this respect, welcome, welcome to the adult world. Like, this welcomes I mean, the real world. Jack. Yeah, I mean, I didn't get it first, but when I finished university, I didn't. I mean, there's, there's, you know, I had a lot of wilderness years, nowhere even near an art scene or, yeah. or, or having any any opportunity much to to make art that people saw, just stuff that I was making that nobody saw. Yeah, and so yeah, I guess that, I mean, so it, from my point of view, even though you've had a crash down to earth you're still doing pretty well for someone like you ask me my age I'm 33 I would say you've got a bigger profile within the arts which is cool I'm not well, I'm I, not upset about that but the, than I than I do and you've just graduated university so there you, is some you know your, your drive and your your suffering if you like is is, is doing so is paying off a little yeah, bit it pays off every now and then but not financially I, I'm not, not that, financially. that's the thing <laughs> so that's why I feel like I sound like a spoiled brat all the time right because like I'm comparing Bangs of the Gun, which is a stand-up poetry night, which I love. Yeah. I'm working on a show called The Surgery on Radio 1, which is kind of like Radio 1's only, you know, talk-based um, social action radio show, which is about getting young people to speak about issues that are affecting them and and, and give a platform for everyone. It's an equal playing field, level playing field, and it's hosted by Alid and a doctor called Dr Rada, and they basically get young people to talk up and speak about things that affect them, from anxiety to bullying to being unemployed to being skin. And, and like, the effect of that show, you can feel it and you can see it. And you see it through social networking, but then you also see it through, you know, actually listening to it. And being a part of that team has been great, and mm. I've loved it, and I hopefully will work for them more. And I went on air and spoke for an hour about death and bereavement and we got people to call up and that was like a mainstream national outlet that was doing everything that I genuinely really believed in and thought this is great so I'm chuffed about that and I'm like making this show so I've you know you've got the support of the roundhouse and I've got the support of the roundhouse and the arts council paid for like gave me money towards researching and developing the first initial stage so Everything on from that point of view, like my mum, who I'm speaking to all the time at the minute, is like, Christ almighty, Jack, get over yourself. It's not that bad. What are you even worried about? Blah, blah, blah. But it's it's just what I think I'm worried about is that it, it, it's just bad that I'm doing all this, but I'm still finding that money situation to be the be it like the make it or break it yeah type thing. and that's the unfortunate reality so you know, yeah you know, it doesn't matter it's if it's fine to speak about it because mm. when people don't speak about reality as your work is all about yeah it's a terrible thing when we don't tell, talk about our experiences when yeah. we're not allowed to speak 
you know, so don't 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 self censor yourself. Yeah. You know, moan about this shit. That's, <laughs> yeah. it, I think it's it's okay to moan. It's really important that we talk about this stuff. If we want the mm. arts to be vibrant, if we want, the, you know, everyone likes to use the word social mobility. I, I think there's a lot of questions to be asked about that yeah. term generally. But if everyone likes to use it so much, why is no one actually trying to yeah. make it happen? Exactly. It's like you know, it's and also <clears> all the kind of like. You know, all the things that are funding and grants within the arts. Not, I'm not necessarily speaking about the Arts Council mm-hmm. scheme, but just general funding projects that are available are all about how good you look on paper. They're all about submitting an application form. Yeah. And, and they're about, you know, well, how does this read? How can we market this? What does this look like? It's not about people turning up to watch the performance first. It's about how you sell it in terms of writing right and so you know I've applied for loads of stuff for Edinburgh I'm, I'm you know Mr Let's Apply and just to hope for the best and it's just interesting that before you even get to show maybe what your work might be like or what it feels like you have to prove yourself in so many other ways on paper which isn't really what your show is well, often, does that make sense yeah I mean often people are proving themselves on paper before they've even made the show yeah so I mean and you've put just... all of this work into this show and you've developed it and it's a, you know it's it's about stuff and it's saying stuff and it's I mean it's a really important show and we'll yeah. talk about that a bit more properly but but I mean you're doing all of that and somebody else they just sat down and wrote a speculative and I'm not knocking them because I yeah. write speculative bloody applications all the yeah, time yeah, yeah, but, yeah. But, but, but they've just knocked it off they don't know what they're going to do they'll work it out at the time because that's yeah. the reality of trying to make money as an artist mm. for them as well I mean it's, you know everyone's yeah, exactly. struggling Every, everyone's struggling right that's, yeah. and, 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 but, but, but that might might hit it with no problem whereas and they haven't even come to see your show they haven't even come to sort of like you know that's a, that's a, you know, a yeah. really sad Situation of, that we're in as artists, but and everyone's being squeezed because even the every, funders yeah. are, are re- losing uh, their funders, being, yeah, exactly. funding, right? So the arts council itself is under attack. You know, we don't have mm. a government that wants anyone to, to, to be, be making, funded for yeah. anything. Pull yourselves up by your bootstraps or nothing at all. You well, know? that's what the show's about. Like the show is about it, the show's about grief, and it's about. It, I, I'm really conscious that there's been so many shows about people's bloody dad dying. And so, you know, I really wanted to call it Not Another Dead Dad Show. <laughs> I decided not to go with that title. But, like, it's, it's a, you know, it's about that journey of loss and it's about somebody dying quite unexpectedly and the ramifications of it. And it, it's about celebrating death, actually. It's a really positive... It's not like me right now. It's really positive, optimistic. Yeah, yeah, it's about getting people to come in and and... Just, just feel like it's not necessarily this weird, awkward, horrible thing that we have to constantly kind of bear a, a silent badge of it. But then a part of the show is one particular section is about widows' parents' allowance, which is a welfare payment that you are entitled to if your partner has died and you've got children. And what's happening at the moment is that you know when it happened with my mum and me. This was in 2008, and my mum got like a one-off payment. It was a couple of grand from the government to help towards funeral costs. And then she could get up to £110 per week for any children she had who were under the age of 18. She only had me, and I was 15, so she got £78 a week up until I turned 18 as a, as a welfare payment. That, that went on like petrol for the school run. It went on like travel. It went so quickly. It went like, like that. Yeah. And then... 
what the new proposals are under the Tories to start next year in 2016 is that you get a smaller one-off payment. I think it's like £1,500 towards funeral costs, which the average funeral costs about eight grand, so it's not much at all. And then you get up to £100 a week if you've got children up to 18. However, that payment only lasts for a year after your partner's died. And it, and it basically is the government saying to surviving partners, unless you've got your shit together and are back in employment and have got money after a year you're not going to get any support from us. You're not going to get a widow's parents' allowance. It's gone. It's done. A year is long enough. Right, they're putting an official limit on grief. This is how much is reasonable to grieve. Yeah, it's reasonable to have a year off and and then we can support you after that and then it's done. And what's frustrating is the time that my my dad died in 2008. You know, say my mum had younger children that she would still be getting that payment up until they were 18. Even if my mum had, like, a baby that was, like, three months old, she Mm. would get that weekly payment until that child was 18 because that's money that, you know, your deceased partner has put into the system. They've they've paid it, you know? And unfortunately, what's going to happen in 2016 is that that's going to stop. So even if you have that, like, newborn baby and your partner's died, you, you get it for a year and that's it. And it strikes me as wrong on two main levels. It strikes me as really bad because of the whole, you know, let's put one year of a limit on grief, when grief is completely immeasurable. And quite frankly, a year is nowhere near long enough. I still, you know, have issues where I'm grieving over my dad, and that's like six years ago. And and grief in itself, immediate grief, I think is, you know, if I had to put a time limit on it, I don't know what that is, but it's not a year. Twelve months is nowhere near long enough. It's it's ridiculous. It's it's a, a, a time frame that's been plucked out of you know somebody in, in finances looking at it rather than somebody with a compassion and heart and who's been through it. Mm-hmm. And the second reason why it annoys me is because it's happening, and it's a proposal that has been floating around for a year now, and no one's fucking talking about it. And the reasons why no one's talking about it is because widows and orphans and people who've lost parents are not sexy points of political discussion. They, they don't necessarily rile people up. They don't, they don't really get much coverage unless it's some kind of like tragic, dramatic Daily Mail story about, you know, a woman who's lost everything and her husband, etc., etc. So we constantly paint out people who have lost someone in a kind of shock, younger age and and circumstances being just just basically quite tragic without really kind of thinking about how logistically they're supporting themselves and the other thing about the proposal that really pisses me off is that unless you are married to your partner and you have children with them if you're if you're not married and they die you get nothing you don't get any payment at all right and it's just another thing that is this whole promotion of Christian values and marriage and, you know, what legitimately makes a parent. Right. And in the eyes of the government, being a married parent is better than being a non-married parent. Right. I mean, I've been with my partner for 14 years, right? Yeah. Uh, if, if this idea that marriage is more important than those 
14 years yeah. someone who's been together for two years somehow has like a stamp over their relationship that's mm. superior to mine it's not the biggest social issue so I don't really give a shit yeah. but it's still a little bit I mean it's offensive and, and I don't mean a, that to, a, to, to knock anyone else's relationship fine do what you like it's a social issue when you've been with somebody for 25 years and you've both brought up three kids and one of the par- parent, one of the parents dies right. and the other parent gets zero widow's parents allowance. Right, so for me, because I'm relatively privileged in my situation, I don't have children, yeah. it's no big deal. But for somebody in a very different circumstance, yeah. that is fucking it's horrendous. horrific. Yeah, right. It makes me want it, it, to... This is why I'm angry all right. the time, currently, at the moment. Which is funny, because you're not a particularly I'm not naturally a particularly, angry No, person. I'm not. I'm like... You know, I was saying to you earlier, when people speak about, you know, in the past, when friends or family have been speaking about politics, my general thing is to become the clown and to make a joke and to be like, oh, don't speak about this. Come on, guys, let's have fun. Let's forget about it. Oh, let's, you know, I'm Mr. Respite. I'm Mr. Let's not worry. Let's just party type person. But recently, I think reality and being in the real world now and not being in the bubble of having a scholarship and being at uni and growing up and becoming an adult and especially growing up and becoming an adult without a dad and without that predominant figure of support I've just realised that there's a lack of support and there's a lack of interest and there's a lack of let's talk about death and grief and let's talk about how badly as a society we are treating people who are bereaved right and one of the really strong things about was I saw your work in progress and that's kind yeah. of like one of the things that this is like that, that you're channeling this anger <laughs> into if the work in progress is anything to go by the anger is the fact that there's a little bit of anger there a little bit of sadness there a little bit of lots of different very real and important emotions doesn't make it a negative experience what I loved about coming to see that show was how full of like love and joy and stuff like that I kind of left feeling that comes from your voice like so you're a comedian and sort of spoken word person so there's like there's there's a humorous influence in what you do but it also came from like the fact that it had these videos of your of your nan and it had Mm. like this family feel and this like you treated the audience like a almost like a family like giving us like giving people depending on their level of grief giving them stuff like you know which was great right and it was kind of like, even though it was dividing us, because it was like, who's actually experienced grief, right? You, you haven't, you can't have anything. Yeah. Even though it was dividing us, it sort of also was bringing us together. So it was a really yeah. lovely, uh, lovely experience. I love it. That's that it. It's, it's about, you know, grief doesn't have to be a tragedy. My dad dying when I was 15 in the middle of my GCSEs when, you know, the day of my dad's funeral where I lived was voted the happiest place to live in Britain like it's cruel irony and that doesn't have to be tragedy it doesn't always have to be the tragic Daily Mail headline right it's grief is funny and it's weird and it's wonderful and it shows you some unadulterated beautiful pieces of kindness from other people it shows you people working to help you and support you you know i might be saying that there's no support from the government and from the system but in terms of human beings and community you know i've got so much to owe so many people for being really positive around me and for helping me and and encouraging me to do well i wouldn't i wouldn't have been able to have done the whole gcse's a levels uni performance type thing if it hadn't been for people you know 
being there and, and being that kind of support and that shoulder to lean upon. But um, it's it's a show that I I feel like comedy and humour makes things a little bit more accessible in terms of speaking about them and confronting it and all the stories in the show you know it's it's like everyone keeps in in the arts this is my other issue is that everyone's like what is it is it comedy is it spoken word is it theater is it this is it that how can we market it how can we sell it where do we put it in a fringe brochure where do we market it what what websites we put it on what reviews do we ask and i'm like you know what it's all all of those things it's all three yeah it's it's just storytelling. Yeah, it Have is. we forgotten what storytelling is? It, and and it's so funny because you know the arts is is treating spoken word like it's this brand new thing that's like come along in the last ten right, years right, right. that is so new and it's like the purest form of expression. And I'm a bit like, hang on a second, there was a Hindu goddess for spoken word, like. This stuff was done 5,000 years ago. It's not the newest, it's the oldest. Probably, well, yeah, it's probably our our oldest art form (laughs) we've ever had, right? Exactly. Because, I mean, all you need for it is to be able to speak. To speak. But you don't even need to be able to speak. Right, that's true, too. That's the thing. It's literally a story. And, And it's within all of us. So, you know, there are spoken word artists who are great, but they're no better than, you know, a bus driver. Right. No better than Absolutely. anybody who's got a story at all. Which is why, why, what I like about running Spark is that you see that, like you see exactly. that everybody's story is valid. Like, yeah, yeah. And so, you know, for me, putting my family into the the show and making everybody in the audience feel like they're a member of my family is is basically saying we are all telling a story and we are all as valid as each other you guys are as valid as me to say whatever the hell you like about whatever your experience is. And the whole point of dividing up an audience, you know, what I do with the show is I, if you've been bereaved, then you kind of get special treatment. And if you haven't been bereaved, like your special treatment as in you get like food and you get to come in the, the theatre first. And if you haven't been bereaved, you've got to wait and you don't get food. But it's not about segregating, it's about... You know, saying, can we stop treating bereaved people like they're these weird, special aliens, like they're mutants, like they've suddenly, you know, because somebody's died, they're not the same person as what they were before someone's died. You know, we, you know, I say it's, you know, in the show, when just after my dad died, teachers would speak to me in softer voices and I'd get larger portions of pudding from the dinner ladies and things like that. And I used to get free printing privileges from my school right. library because they were like, "No, oh, here's the boy's dead stuff." Well, you had a card, didn't you? I had a, yeah, and I had a little card that would get me out of uh, out of lessons if I felt sad. And like, I'm not judging any of those three things because the whole show is about how I milked them and how I used death to be a bit of a diva and how I used the whole special treatment to get what I want. But <laughs> which is why, like, one of which the is, I like which is an that. awful exploitative thing. But the idea of why I did all those things and why I became a little bit of a, you know, why I, beca- I, I was, you know, thought myself as a kind of bereaved VIP <laughs> is because it was the only thing in my whole entire life as a 15-year-old boy that I had any control over. Right. Um, and control and grief as a, as a teenager, you know, we don't speak about how, you know, if a young person's playing up and they're, you know, they're being disruptive or they're being this or that. We just jump to the conclusion of them being 
uh, you know, a smart ass or a smart aleck or being overconfident or being over this. And I'd say in 99.9% of cases, it's because they're riddled with confidence issues and they're the least confident person in that room. Right. And they're the ones who haven't got any control over anything. But what they have got control over is pissing everyone off. Right. And that's still a legitimate form of control. Right. And 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 so what I'm trying to say is, you know, let's... that's why there are some amazing brilliant teachers in this country and there are some that just don't get the point and should not be allowed near pupils I fully agree Um, with that and and so yeah and and it's just interesting because when you don't have control over you know if your mum's going to be able to pick you up from school or if you've got enough money to go on a school trip or you know you, you have got enough money to get the train into London you know, there's there's times where I've been at a station and been like, I don't have enough money for the ticket, and just walked home. <laughs> and and um, you know, when you don't have control over those things, you seek other areas of life where you can get right. control. And for me, it was you know, being able to use my dad's death and this kind of like sympathy card to get what I wanted from people. And it was also about food and binge eating and that you know me eating loads and comfort eating a lot was not necessarily me being like a greedy pig which I am anyway don't people know it was about me having some way of controlling my day-to-day routine and 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 what was going on in my life when I had no control over anything else right and until people start realizing these things and putting them in perspective what we carry on doing is telling bereaved young people that they're either not going to be able to do what they want to do or they're disruptive or they need help or they need counselling or they need this. And for some people, they do need help and they do need counselling. But other people, it's just a case of trying to be a little bit more empathetic and being more encouraging and getting them to speak and not feel like they have to be ashamed that they've lost someone. I felt a real sense of shame that my dad had died. Mm. I felt a real sense of like, oh my God, my family is like even more messed up than it was before. Like I'm even less of a, I now fit in. I tried so hard to fit in that I now fit in even less than I did. Yeah. And so it, it was just interesting because now six years on, I can see the reasons why I felt like that a lot more. At the time, it just felt shit all the time. Right. At the time, I felt like I was walking around school and I had boy whose dad's died tattooed on my forehead because it's everything from the kind of people looking at you and tilting their head slightly in sympathy to speaking in a gentler voice. It, it, I mean, all of it, everyone's body language changes as well as what they approach you to speak about. That changes as well as how they treat you, as well as what positions they put you in, as well as what they ask of you. Like everything changes when somebody dies, and I don't think it has to anymore. I don't. I don't think that I was really lucky that I had a very supportive school and they gave me this little card to get out of lessons. But you know, there needs to be. I think every school should have a compulsory, you know, bereavement safeguarding like some kind of policy put in place not every school does my school did which I was really lucky about so there was a certain set of procedures that went into place but not every school does so 
it's luck of the draw anyway. It's luck of the draw, so isn't like it? So, like, my school had bullying policies. I don't mm. recall them stopping the massive amount of bullying that yeah. happened. Yeah. I mean, I'm not, like, saying because of that we shouldn't try. We absolutely should. Yeah. I mean, there's a, there's a certain element of school and, and all of these things that we don't have equality there to begin mm. with. Um, so, because some schools are better than others, and yeah. all of these things that that's that's meaning some bereaved people have a better environment to go to yeah, school true. than others, right? And, and and I hope I'm making sense. I hope I'm making sense. I understand that sometimes it's I, I sound like I'm being really. It sounds confusing, but it's just a case of bereaved people are the same as what they were beforehand. They've just been through something that is is a tragedy, and the way to get out of that. And the way for it to not be a tragedy anymore is to talk about it and to speak right. about it and to speak about the person who's died and to ignore it and to not ask how someone is and to not just have normal conversations. You know, people often say, oh, that this person's dad's died. I don't know what to say to them. I don't know what to do. I don't know how to make them feel better. And it's like, you know what? It's not your responsibility to make them feel better. It's your, just resp- it's your responsibility to act as a friend and acknowledge that something's happened don't ignore it don't like i've had some friends pretend it hasn't even happened i remember going back to school and people being like oh hey yeah how you doing yeah yeah i've been and it's what's really great is that people start they don't know how to ask what you've been up to so they start speaking about themselves for ages and i love the awkwardness in that and that yeah i think that's the show is about celebrating social awkwardness well that's one of the things that really resonated with me because i am an incredibly socially awkward person yeah first of all i definitely enjoy awkwardness as a yeah. as, a, as an art form like it's one of the humors that is i like i find i find awkwardness funny but it's also something that i guess i've started to sort of like play towards in my performance in my in what i do of like yeah. going hey Hello, I'm awkward. I'm socially awkward, but guess what? I'm okay with that, and it's you, cool. you might be too. And we're, we'll all be socially mm. awkward together. And if you're not, hey, I won't judge you for it. You know, um, it, it's fine to be socially competent. I'm not. I'm not against you. <laughs> but 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 you know, well done. But I'm I'm socially awkward, and, and I'm not ashamed. And I mean, of course, I am a little bit ashamed. This is why I'm developed. You know, which is why I'm working on it in this kind of way. Of yeah. Like, Finding a way to not be with people, right, and also finding a way to like not be ashamed of it. Mm. It, it, You might get to those moments. Like I've got to moments where I felt less shame about body issues or less shame about mental health issues, and part of that's been about standing up on a stage and telling everybody I'm cool with it. Of course, I'm not cool with it. Like it doesn't. It's not like I get that. I tell that story, and that's the end of my story, and Mm. I want people to to feel that emotion with me, but. It doesn't mean I'm, f- I'm fine with it. It's a it's a constant process, and I yeah. guess bereavement's going to be it's like that. It's the same, exactly. Just me doing a show about you know dad dying doesn't mean I now don't grieve over dad. Yeah, I, you know, you, I think I probably will for the rest of my right. life. You right. know, but what it what it means is me basically saying like the tragedy of it is is now less important than the celebration of you know going through it. And, right, and now I feel like it's. You know, I don't want to sound like Bono, but I feel like it's now kind of my responsibility to to have that as as the message of what I do in that we don't have to treat bereaved people like they're aliens all the time and we don't have to be worried about what to say. Sometimes it's just about, you know, sending a text and being like, if you want to chat, I'm always here. Right. Like That can be the most powerful thing you can say to a bereaved person all day, sometimes when you're feeling shit. It's just to know that somebody is there to speak to, even if you don't act upon it. And 
Very people still find the same things funny, and they still find they like the same foods, and they like the same colours, and right. they like the same TV programmes. They don't suddenly completely change and alter. And and I think with young people maybe, and this is why I'd like to do more workshops in schools and and kind of get to that audience. It, it's to say that you know you don't become different. Your circumstances do, but you as a person, mm. you don't change. You might change. That's a bit of an overgeneralisation. You might, you might really struggle and might be depressed for a while. But you know, it the core, you. the it core character right. of you is still the same. Yeah, and you can always get it back. Right. And I think what I felt like after Dad had died is that I was never going to be the same person again, and that I was a fuck up, mm. and that there was no way that I was going to be able to already, already I felt like in primary school and the beginning of secondary school that I was competing so hard with all these other. Like middle class privileged children who are all great, they're my friends. I'm not knocking them for their, they can't help where they're from. I get where you're saying, um, I'm not. But I, I would, I'd already tried so hard to compete to then have dad die. It was like, oh, I've now got even more to compete against. But, you know, that's not always a bad thing. And that's such a, I mean, that, again, that's a, a, a sort of thing again that fine resonates with what you do, with sort of my experience. I, I've mm. not been bereaved. But I have felt like I'm broken and I'm never going to be mended. Yeah. Like I've had that ex- feeling a lot. Yeah. And I know a lot of other people who do. And so I think that often when we talk about these things, you know, even though we're talking about the specifics of one thing, they sort of have oh, so many They all relate. They're all interconnected, yeah. And one of the things that I feel like you work on, uh, not just with this show, but in other areas, is you look, you, you look at mental health, right? You've done yeah. work with uh, Calm, haven't you, I think? Yeah. There you go, my amazing research skills well, hey. strike. Um, <laughs> and so, I mean, and that's, uh, again, a cause very close to my heart um, mm. in terms of having dealt and struggled with, or de- dealt's a silly word because I haven't dealt with them, they're still yeah. there, but having mental health issues yeah. uh, for a lot of my life and only really admitting to them, like, the Recently. last four, yeah, yeah. four years. It's interesting because I started working with Karma, who are brilliant, charity they're called it stands for the campaign against living miserably and they're a suicide prevention charity specifically targeted at young men right and and the fact that you know the biggest killer of of young well when i first started working for them it was the biggest killer of young men was suicide and now it's the biggest killer of men from 16 to 49 is suicide so you know we and you would think that's such a weird statistic for me to even say because you think that from like the ages of like 35 to 50 it should be like cancer or car accidents or well yeah but not in the current else, climate not where current people climate. are losing their fucking jobs and we yeah. and we tell men their job is to be the breadwinner so yeah. when they stop having that thing yeah when we tell men to be the strong and silent type they kill <clears> themselves right basically and so what what calm do is specifically try and target young men so they're not a clinical charity they're not they're accessible and they're funny and they're about suicide and for me what i always felt like with my work is that it was you know it was supposed to be accessible and funny and about death and so working with them has been a really really great opportunity because they are making a change and they have so far and they are raising awareness more than anything else of the fact that suicide is, is, is a really big issue right now in the UK, especially in males. And, you know, they the Jane Powell, who set the charity up, she 
you know, it's always really funny because everyone thinks that this charity was must have been set up by men, mm. and it's not. Like the right. core well, so often principle women behind and feminists are exactly. really helping men or trying to help men, and men yeah. just don't understand it. Yeah, it's really weird because <clears throat> because you know Jane is is inherently I, I I think calm is born inherently out of feminist principles in 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 terms of gender equality and in terms of let's stop promoting this traditional notion of masculinity as right. <clears throat> strong and silent and unemotional and right. not crying and all this kind of bollocks. And so, you know, what she does and what she stands for is amazing. I love the woman. I think she's right. great. And she often, you know, with Calm, we get a barrage of kind of criticism from people being like, what about women killing themselves? Why aren't you helping women? And it's like, you know, with breast cancer charities, they're specifically aimed towards women. You don't hear loads of men coming up and being like, why are you having men? Breast cancer affects men too. You know what right. I mean? Whereas we, because feminism is such a point of contention at the minute, you kind of do, you know, I'm constantly getting people being like, I don't really like the idea of calm because it's only helping men. And it's like, well, no. The reason it's helping men predominantly is because it's predominantly men who are killing themselves. Right. And you know, it's 80%. And if you want to look for the reasons... That- Behind those, the, the higher amount of men killing themselves, yeah. Uh, then, then, yeah, I think a feminist analysis helps you to understand exactly. that. From 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 the from the one hand of, of like we've been talking about of reasons why people might have that motivation, to the the other hand, which is it, what I've read, and I may be wrong. I may be speaking completely out of ignorance. I normally am. Yeah. But but, but <laughs> the, the, one of the reasons that there's a higher rate of success. Uh, for male suicide compared to the because suicide attempts are around about the same I think yeah. um, but 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 it maybe even more for women but it's because of the the ways that men choose to do it yeah. are much more violent um, but you, but so like, that's what I've, I've I've heard would you I know, know what I, I feel like that maybe was the case but but nowadays it, it feels like you know I wrote my whole dissertation about the suicide representation in the media and and I've did lots of research on and as we've heard it was a first so most definitely much better than my point of view no um, it's I'm not saying your point of view is wrong (laughs) no 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 it probably is what I I kind of feel like is that nowadays it's actually just we know how to kill ourselves better right and the internet has changed that right and the internet has made it really easy right and, and it's and it's a really dangerous it's a liberating tool and it's a dangerous tool. It's like everything that we're all worried about the internet at the minute. And so, you know, people Googling things, I think when anything that affects us medically, whether it's physical health or mental health, we immediately think, oh, let's Google NHS direct, they must have the answer. And, and yeah, it's a dangerous platform for people to encourage other people to take their own life. And yep. unfortunately, we have got a media. You know what? It's really interesting, isn't it? Because everything I'm pissed off about seems the typical kind of liberal mindset. It's either the media's fault or the government's fault. But we've got a media... You know, it's not even like this. I'm talking just about the Daily Mail. Because no, no, the no, Daily no. Mail are probably better than the Independent and the Guardian. Because the Daily Mail might do a sensationalist headline. But the Daily Mail always bloody put the Samaritan's helpline at the end of their articles whereas the Cardigan Independent very rarely do right and I mean you know I'm not saying the Daily Mail is any better because headlines of suicide with them are disgusting but it's not like it's just the kind of tabloids that are perpetuating the stigma of suicide it's it's all media we don't really have a very good understanding of of suicide and suicidal ideation in people and and we still 
basically make suicidal people out to be crazy and unhinged and and kind of dangerous. Like it's really interesting when you look at media coverage of suicides. Yeah. We and selfish, right? One yeah. of the things that frustrates oh, yeah. me. Oh, everyone, my, every, yeah. My aunt. I mean, my you know, my aunt. Uh, tried to kill herself and I've interviewed her on this show about that mm. um, and one of the things that I found very surprising as a I mean and I've, I've had suicidal thoughts and ideation yeah. and stuff like that within my life but I've not ever gone that far and one of the things that I found surprising to me was was the fact that from her point of view it was so unselfish like and there'll yeah. be and there'll be so many different motivations the right it would, but, but, so I'm not saying everybody's motivation is the it's same the as same, my aunt's, yeah, but yeah. but my my but but that was it. It was for her. It was like I'm doing this for everybody. Yeah. I'm removing the problem, mm. and she didn't realise that the, the thing that people think is the selfishness is aren't they thinking about all the people they'll leave behind, how they'll feel? No, they think they'll feel better. Often, yeah. that's the saddest thing about it. That's that's yeah, you know, and that's really common, especially in young people. They feel like my family would be better off without me, right? Or or what they how they feel like is that everyone seems to be happier when they're asleep or if they're asleep and you know what the answer to that is a categorical no and and i i i would would feel it's just funny isn't it it's for some reason the blame always seems to be on victims rather than the cause right and so you know right now there's lots of different causes because of the state we're all in as as maybe a country but those causes don't seem to be getting eradicated as much as men who feel like shit are right that's and yeah. so you know it's suicide isn't this selfish thing that disrupts your central line journey from Stratford to Oxford Circus it isn't this you know selfish dramatic attention seeking legacy that somebody wants to leave fuck Lana Del Rey for saying it it would, you know, her dying early would make her cool. Like suicide isn't cool, death isn't cool. It's not something that we should be promoting as a way of sorting out people's problems. But unfortunately, we have a real glamorization of suicide in this country. We have a real sense of trivialising and over dramatising, sensationalising suicide. That's a better way of putting it. You know, when Lorraine Scott took her own life, the wife of Mick Jagger. She's a fashion designer, and the Daily Mail headline was, it was like, hung by the scarf that didn't sell. And it's horrendous. It's horrendous the way that we treat suicidal people. We, we basically, with Loren Scott, we were like, we didn't even give her the credentials of being her own human being. Right. We just described her as the wife of somebody rich and famous who was a failed fashion designer. We didn't even give her a human... Stance. We didn't. We didn't give her the dignity that she deserved, in terms of the tragedy of her wanting to take her own life. And what we did was we questioned. We were like, why? Why did a woman who's rich and who had it all want to take? And we delve into it, and it it becomes like this sensationalist drama. It's like one of those true movies, right? And something. everyone's looking for the who done it answer, which is exactly. there's no answer because there's so many reasons. Guess who done it? Right. All of us. We, yeah. Exactly. We all did. Everyone. <clears throat> Right, right, right. 100% of suicides are never, ever because somebody has inherently hated themselves since birth and decided that their destiny must be to take their own life. It's just funny that people think, oh, you know what, I assume, you know, their whole life 
I just I just knew I just knew they were they were born to and it's oh, I don't know it's just interesting when people feel like they need to have a really clear set conclusion as to why somebody might take their own life the fact of the matter is 90% of suicides are by people who have got a mental health issue so that's when the mental health part plays into it mm. and have got an existing mental health issue and don't feel enough support and then Sometimes it's just the fact that we haven't necessarily got all the preventative measures in place to stop people when they feel like in a moment of immediate tragedy or immediate upset that that's their only way out. And so I really support Calm and Samaritans as well. And I think, you know, the more we destigmatize suicide as the selfish silent killer and the more we speak about it and just raise awareness we don't know like everything i'm saying about talking about death and talking about bereavement talking about suicide i don't want people to speak about it every day we don't have to have a chat about it like every week i'm just saying like when it becomes right. a topic relevant don't shy away from it right you know i'm not i'm not these things are part of life they're it's part the of thing, life right? that's why we should speak about them yeah it's just really funny how you know if somebody's got a lump you chat to your friends about it, you might go, oh, I'm going to go to the doctor's, blah, blah, blah. But somebody feels like all the time they're crying and devastated, very rarely do people speak about it because they don't want to be perceived as weird. And mental health is as important as physical health. And I think we're getting somewhere. Like, I've, I'm sure that for however long we've been recording this podcast, I've come across as a bit pessimistic and a bit <laughs> negative and a bit angry and bitter. I don't but think you ult- have. Ultimately, I'm optimistic and positive and I want to help support the people who have got the, the bigger tools to create the positive change right. and I think Karma are doing it and I think they are doing it in a way that is a respectful, dignified exciting, celebratory positive let's let's remember what it's like to be a community and and they're doing it in a way that shifts this whole focus of me, like me seems to be the way we're all thinking and sorry I need to explain this more I've got this thing where I think like in the world there's two types of people you're either a me or you're a we and we bolster the idea of everybody should be a me and I don't agree with it and I think we should all be a we because we're all the same we're all different obviously in our own individual ways but when people's main drive is always me you know when people's main drive is like People are stealing benefits because, and I'm paying for it, and it's me that's making the system. And people are, and, and the people have that me mentality. It's a really destructive thing. But when people have a we mentality, and they think, you know, this problem is involving all of us, and this whole issue is is linked into more than just suicide or more than just one concept it's got so much you know suicide is linked to unemployment it's linked to depression it's linked to addiction it's linked to um, suppressing of sexuality it's linked to parents and all of those things are linked to even more complicated things like you know like like drugs law or like you know employment law rights like all of these things availability of jobs right you know amount of money disposable income people have got amount of it's, it's linked it's to so, so much. big. So when people take suicide and they think of it as me and they just think of it as, like, life and death, they 
completely overlook and trivialize and ignore a whole long list of other stuff that involves them directly as part of the problem and therefore, in my eyes, as an optimist, involves them as part of the solution. And so we just need to stop being so bloody selfish (coughs) and become... You know, it's a funny point. It's funny, it makes me laugh when I say it, but I think it's the solution, Dave. I don't think you're wrong. I think think (laughs) if we all became slightly less worried about what would happen to myself and me and what would happen to we would be in a much better place. Yeah, I mean, I'm I'm a big I'm I'm, I'm it's, it's, it's are you a we or a me? I'm, I, well, I, I like to, I, I aspire <laughs> towards a we. I think um, yeah, and, and, but of course I am you know totally me obsessed as well. Yeah, I mean, look, <laughs> let's face it. I've written a show about my dad dying. I'm I'm, a, right. I'm an egotistical bastard right, right, right. sometimes. But that's what we kind of all are. But that's some, what we all level, are on right? some level. Yeah, or some of us. I mean, it's it's always this kind of difficulty between like drawing a line between. Over universalizing and over uh, separating. Yeah, you know, so it's always important to remember all of the difference that we all have, and and how that means that we have to. If we are all going to be we, we have to sort of like be aware that some we's are like, more privileged than others yeah, and stuff yeah, like that. Exactly. But, but that's a, it. Takes compromise, right? It, of course, it takes compromise. It's the one thing that annoys me when somebody's not ever willing to compromise. Like it's it's about people who are really successful are just successful at being successful. Yeah. And so that's when it becomes the me. And I think we promote, especially to young people, especially, you know, I'm 21 years old. I feel like most of the messages I get about being in the arts or being in this or being in journalism or being in anything creative or, or just maybe, you know, being in a, in a sales job, being in anything, most of the promotion is you you it's about you 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 and i don't know why that is because all that does is say you know unless you're willing to go from we to me you won't be able to be successful right. and i don't agree with and that it's, but it's fundamentally a lie anyway this it, it's i mean underneath all of that is this great man theory of history or art right mm. that, that it's made by great people i yeah. mean generally it's been men uh, which is a yeah. big part of the problem but but then that but that's false Art mm. is made through collective endeavour. Like, like all human knowledge is collective. We mm. co- we collect it together. We share it with each other. It sparks new ideas. That's what art is. Mm. We are all a product of, of everything we've experienced. Yeah. Right. So the, one of the things I like about your show is it is it is from you. It's all about you, but it also is collectively including the audience and your family and mm. sort of like and television and all of the things that have made you you. All yeah. of the cultural reference points that have made you you aren't about you they're about we they're All about everybody yeah yeah yeah, yeah. I mean sorry Dave no well, that's fine the, the last I mean I we've, should... we've gone we've gone like full circle yeah we? we have and I, I would say that the, the one, one thing I found amusing is that even though we're in one of the quietest locations there's some, somewhere in the distance is some drumming going on oh, so, so which is like, fine as it's, I've it's got more it's been representing your uh, your rage yeah that's a good point it's kind of like yeah and I don't know if that will have picked up on the on the mic or not I, I, it might be some kind of drumming I'm hearing through the vibrations in the floor <laughs> you could be hearing the inner anger that nobody else can hear but no I think we got to a positive place oh I think we were I 
think people 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 would have probably you know stopped listening to this at 15 minutes because they thought who's this ranty 21 year old who hasn't got into the real life yet guess what the real world's hard but I'm really hoping they got to you know however however we're at now like 40 50 minute mark but I think we've got to a good place but I also think that they won't (laughs) be thinking that if they were thinking that they should rethink their thoughts because like I mean when I when I said you know welcome to the real world there was a sort of like humour in that yeah, because that's that's a reality. That, that's that what people the second face. show is called. But, 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 that, but that said, I don't think that your your concerns are illegitimate. I think they're very, very important and pertinent mm. and relevant, and you should be talking about them. And we should be listening to twenty one year olds. Uh, you you know the stuff that you're doing is a lot about listening to even younger people than you. And I'm yeah. I'm I'm very supportive of that kind of a thing as well. I mean, yeah. I, as someone but who felt like I had no voice, it's it's great to think that some people might have well, a voice. Yeah, exactly. Know. But it's also why the the you know my show is called Good Grief and it's written by me and my nan, right? And she's eighty five, right? And her voice is even more important, right? You know, I feel her, like I mean she's in it. it you know, she, yeah. people will see her yeah. if they go to see the show. And she's yeah. she's not just an elderly lady; she's an articulate, intelligent, clever, funny, hardworking, hard grafter, been through tough times and she's she's telling as much of a story as I am right and and unfortunately I think what we do is we put a, a massive focus on youth but 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 at the same time basically those who dominate the arts I find really boring at the moment and without sounding offensive to you Dave they're mainly like white men who are 33 yeah you asked me my age later on and you were like oh 33 fucking hell and I'm the same age as Jesus I mean I, I don't don't get me wrong I get annoyed with 33 year old white men myself and you know I mean it's even worse if you are one right because then you're, you're, you're like fuck <laughs> I'm going to be <laughs> one eventually you will you will um, but you know no, I mean, I, I, I agree, and, and, and as somebody who's, like, when I was born, my dad was 58, so yeah. I, I've always been very aware of, like, the, the, the o- o- older people in society aren't represented as yeah. much as... So when I was, you know, when I was young, you know, my dad was old, and I, you know, yeah, I was aware so of that. That's why I feel like this is just not... This is not another dead dad show, because it's a dead son show as much as it's a dead right. dad show. And and that's why, you know, it, 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 it I feel like it's a collaborative thing. Yeah, yeah. Um, it's why... I think what she has to say she's you know she's the star of the show she's she was everyone's favorite bit when I first did the work in progress because and she's another reason why you need to to, to, like because if you if you don't have uh, financial backing for your show it's much harder for you to show her because she is on video right exactly it's something that you require for there's no way I can do the show without her yeah and um so it's an it's a it's a weird it's a weird thing because everyone, I even I now started calling it a one man show, but that was never the expectation. Right. It's one man show in terms of like who's physically on stage. Yeah. So obviously it will be marketed as that, but you know, it's, it's, it is a we show. It's yeah, not me. But definitely. And it's about encompassing, you know, my mum's in it at some point. She's not on camera, but her voice just pops in and it's, it's her story as well. It's, it's, it, this is what I'm really worried about because I feel like I can take it out to Edinburgh and I could just imagine loads of people reviewing it and being like, oh, it's another dead dad show, another person with dead daddy issues. Daddy, daddy issues on stage, great, cool, done before. But it's not. It's a dead dad show and a dead husband show and a dead brother show and a dead son show. 
yeah and and it and and all those things actually connect to it, it just being about death and grief and let's talk about it yeah no because I, I, I'm, people, I'm, I'm i'm very I, sold on I, it I'm i just, hope my audiences do yeah. i hope you are too please <laughs> come please come um but but it's 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 i suppose my way of saying i'm fed up of of the me shows let's have a wee one yeah well that's a great thing the the last question i asked yes. people is do you have anything to plug and i feel like we've been we've been sort of like plugging a little bit for a little bit already you know both in in the in the specifics of some of the work you do and some of the shows you do but also in the in the wider sense of the way that people take it sometimes they go oh this is an opportunity for me to tell everybody how i feel the world should be and you've sort of definitely done that too so yeah but also but specifically, we bought a coffee bef- me and dave bought a coffee before starting this podcast and the coffee stick in my anger i've picked it yes, to like this is true. about 50 different pieces i've completely ruined i've killed a coffee stick yeah you have but i mean i don't think that it, it's it, all over the it, floor you know i don't know if it's if it's murder when it's an, an inanimate piece of wood and it's probably already murdered when it got taken out of the tree so. exactly but, I've, but just, um, I've given it new life no, you've a, reminded me of me as well like i'm an, i'm an I, I do fiddle i'm a fiddler right i went on a date the other day with someone and and they just constantly were like fiddling with everything and i thought i'm like you're either really passionate about this date or you're so bored that you don't even want to focus on, on what we're talking about. But I'm going on another date with that person. I'm going to stop talking about my love life. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That was not part of the that's show. That's, 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 I'm uh, still uh, single if anybody wants to, you right, know. Right, that rarely comes up in the plugging section, people's yeah. love lives. Um, <laughs> but, 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 but where can people, like, find you online, I guess, if, if you know, um, to complete the plug? So to, to do the This Morning ITV plug thing... I'm at Jack Rook on Twitter, and, and it's R O K E. And if you tweet me any inquiries you may have, I'll answer them. <laughs> um, I've st- I'm launching a website. When, when, I mean, ho- I think it's going to be out by February, called www.thegoodgriefproject.com. Well, that'll probably this probably and won't come out till after February anyway, be, so it'll probably be because right. what I what I suppose I should plug is the fact that you know I. I feel like I could make a show and sit behind the veil of I've made an incredible piece of performance and let everyone else do the action part of it, but I don't want to do that. So what what I've decided is that the show is one strand of a bigger project, which is, you know, one bit is the show and performance side and then the other bit is a YouTube channel and I want to film and record different people who are relevant to a kind of maybe younger audience that I can use in schools and stuff to speak about their experiences of death and grief and how they felt. And and I I, I think, you know, the predominant... Like, if you want the definitive way that I would describe all of my work, not even just this show, everything I think I write about is, is essentially about loneliness and it's about why people are lonely. And I think it's the predominant feeling I've I've felt ever... And so what I wanted to do, I think when somebody dies and you're at a young age, you feel like you're the only one going through it. Mm -hmm. You feel like you're the only one who's in that position when actually, you know, it's every 22 minutes a child loses a parent in this country. And I mean, I know statistics are all a bit like, you know, you can never completely rely on them, but it's common. It's not necessarily like, you feel like... I know loads of people who have lost their parents when Mm. they were, when they were children. Exactly. Like, I've I've spoken to lots of people on this show about About that topic. Like, it's a frequent topic that comes up because it's a frequent experience that people have. So what I want to do is kind of get people who, who, you know, are artists or comedians or have got some kind of, you know, relevant 
or even people who necessarily don't have a profile like just have a really interesting story just record them as part of a YouTube channel and and use those stories so it, it's the idea of let's let's not feel so alone and it would be great I think if somebody's googling you know my parents died I feel really alone or or you know support or you know and anything and, and for that video to come up so right that's like the I kind of want to put my journalism degree into use and, and make something that is not just you know, about me being a show-off on stage. And then the other third of the, the project is to work more with the Plan If campaign and the Child Bereavement Network, and they're a really, really great organisation who are lobbying against the Widow's Parents Allowance changes that we spoke about earlier. But they've launched a thing called Plan If, and it's to encourage parents to make plans for their children you know, if if they find themselves that they're going to die, and and to, you know, actually write a will and think about guardianship and and and, and make videos and and letters and make sure that you know one in five deaths of people of parental age are unexpected, and so we have got people like with my dad, he didn't know he was going to die, and then when he did, there was there was nothing really in place for me. There was nothing. To, there was no support. It made it even more of a shock. It made it even harder because there wasn't. You know, a funeral plan. There wasn't, you know, what's going to happen to me and my mum in our house. There, there was no kind of like logistical thing put in place. So the Plan If campaign, which is planif.org.uk, is to basically encourage more parents and prospective parents to do it. So, for example, Dave, if you became with child and pregnant today, I would tell you to go and make sure you registered a will right. at the same time as registering the birth certificate. To me, it makes complete sense for people to do it. Because I can tell you now, there's nothing worse than a parent dying and not having... You already don't know what to do. Nobody knows what to do in that situation. And I feel like it would have been a real comfort if my dad had put something in place and some kind of strategy in place that would have helped us a lot more whilst dealing with the emotional pain of things. Mm. So... Well, that's I'm a practical gonna, plug that any you know, pra- parents listening one, should consider that. Yeah, 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 and yeah. I, I just think... Look, I mean, a lot Google, of my friends look, are having children, that, you know, being 33. Yeah. Loads of them are having children at this moment in mm-hmm. time. And, and uh, I, I, I don't think people think when they have a, 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 a young child... A young child that they're going to... that. Yeah. And they, and put, they, and they should, should. They should yeah, do. Yeah, and yeah. it's not a case of scaremongering people or making people feel like, oh, mm. my God, I'm going to no, no. die. It's just, you know, like practicalities and dismantling this myth that we're all indestructible because we're not. And that doesn't have to be a negative, pessimistic thing. It can be a really optimistic thing to make a plan for what would happen if you die. Mm-hmm. Like... It, you're planning your legacy. You're planning something that should be a celebration of you. Oh, yeah. That should have you unadulteratedly in it. Well, like, I've got a funeral playlist and plan. Oh, great! What's but, a funeral um, something? Oh, there, well, there's loads of them. I could go. Could go oh, you could go up to yeah. too long. Bowl of oranges by Bright Eyes is the one that's coming to mind at the yeah. moment. But there's uh, there's a whole. Like I say, I. I uh, at my funeral, my, 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 my nearest and dearest will probably be uh, tremendously bored if the plan goes ahead and they oh, have, really? to, have to sit to, you know, listen to an entire playlist of songs that I, I think that's great. Ch- change all the time. It's like my dad, readings my dad made us do the 17 minute live version of Leonard Skinner's Freebird <sighs> like, live from Pennsylvania. And right. that was like the ending. And that song to me uh, is like the most biggest piece of music. It's like immense. And so I'm really glad that. You know, he didn't have anything in place for his funeral. He didn't know he was going to die. And 
but he always, throughout my childhood and throughout my life, whenever we listened to that song together, he would be like, I want this as my funeral song, I want this as my funeral... And he kept on saying it, and we all remembered. And so we managed to do that for him, and that was a really important thing and an important legacy of his is that kind of he you know he was a massive fan of music he was a proper like music head and yeah. things like that but it would have been great if we'd have had we'd have known more about what he wanted yeah, so yeah, yeah. planif.org.uk and the show's called good grief and we are aiming to well i don't know what we're aiming to do at the minute because i've got no fucking money <laughs> So watch that place and reach out to Jack if you've got any solutions. You've got any money? If you've got any money, that'd be really nice. But if you just want to chat, that's nicer as well. And you know, I mean, uh, whenever this goes out, I'll update it with any news. I might have. So if you do have one, I'll shove that on the end. Yeah. Yeah. But uh, for anybody who's managed to listen this whole way through, thank you for being persistent. Yeah, I mean, it's been a long one. But how, it's, how long, Dave? Wait, it's an hour and 37 minutes. Oh, my God, I'm so but sorry. I feel like every time that's I That's like it, three episodes of Friends. Well, uh, yeah, well, that's the thing. Is, <laughs> I, I, I work in this long-form medium, but I always feel like every time I say the time on, on, on mic, what I've basically done is provided people of a way of finding out how much I've edited out of the show. Oh, that's true. Because when they listen to it, they'll be like, hang on, it's actually... It's uh, actually only actually 10 minutes like, in! It's actually 120... <laughs> yeah, like, you well, cut out all the depressing bits, Dave. Minutes. What's he got rid of? So, yeah, I mean, I, I like to create that confusion. Um, but I've really enjoyed this uh, conversation and getting better acquainted with you. My mum this morning was like, what are you doing today? And I was like, I'm getting better acquainted with a guy called Dave. And she was like, well, as long as you wear protection, it's all good. And I have warm protection and it's right. been lovely. It has been. In Thank fact, we've you. come full circle right there. We have but come full circle. The last uh, thing I ask my guests to do is to say goodbye to the audience. Thank you very much for listening. Uh, and putting up with me ranting and um, have a lovely 2015 bye everyone bye so Jack is indeed crowdfunding his show he's doing that through Ideas Tap so probably the best way to find out about that crowdfunding campaign and to help Jack to hit his target is to go over to the website that he said thegoodgriefproject.com he's asking for a target of £2,500 you can help him to hit that target and maybe you can help him to hit higher than that target because we've heard that he'll probably need more money than he's asking for and while I'm plugging things I should probably acknowledge that this is episode 198 of Getting Better Acquainted which means that we are one episode away that's 199 next week after that it will be the GBA 200 season, which is five very different conversations where I'm the guest and somebody else is the host. I haven't decided the order for those five episodes yet and I haven't edited the ones which require editing, but I have recorded them all and so I can tell you that they're all interesting and very different and where they're similar, that is interesting too. So I'm going to be interviewed by my partner, Jen. I'm going to be interviewed by Helen Zoltzman from the podcast Answer Me This and The Illusionist. I'm going to be interviewed by the comedian and spoken word artist and interesting person, Chella Quint. 
I'm going to be interviewed by the comedian and storyteller Charlie Harrison, who was referred to right at the beginning of this episode. And we've got the tag team of Sophia Walker and James Mackay, who are two really interesting and different poets. It's almost like a disruption, a kind of situationist approach to interviewing that they took. The episodes will go out Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, within a week. And we'll get to see if I prove to be a consistent character or not. And if you want to join me with celebrating 200 episodes of this show, why not share your favourite of those first 200 episodes? Tell people about the show, leave iTunes reviews. It's been so interesting doing this show and I can't see me ever stopping because people are just so damn interesting. This show is all about hearing the most people that we can and learning how and I struggle with that but learning how to listen to what they have to say as well as share our experiences you can find getting better acquainted on twitter at gba podcast you can find it on facebook subscribe by searching on itunes or you can find it on the website www.gettingbetteracquainted.co.uk There are lots of ways to get better acquainted.